Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. It's April 26th, 1970. Joe Cocker's playing live at the Fillmore. The Jackson 5's ABC is dominating the charts. In Nova Mesto, Slovenia, little Melania Naus is born, and she would one day become First Lady of the United States. And after three years of planning, the World Intellectual Property Organization has begun operations. Now, the purpose of this specialized agency is to provide a place for countries to work together on various intellectual property laws and rules. They want to all agree to interoperate and respect each other's rules, at least to a certain extent. Copyright is, of course, the most well-known type of intellectual property these days, but WIPO is also going to cover trademarks and patents. WIPO is meant to be a clearinghouse, a place to try to harmonize. I'll respect your patents if you respect mine. In fact, its first big achievement is the Patent Cooperation Treaty, which, to oversimplify, made filing a patent in one country equivalent to filing in all of them. Now, different countries still had latitude to approve or deny patents according to their own laws, but it made things a lot simpler than having to file in every single country. WIPO made lots of other treaties and systems to make it easier to handle trademarks and service marks. It created mediation and arbitration to help resolve disputes between countries over these kinds of matters. And in September 1995, with this new internet thing firing up, it took up the digital agenda. Makes sense. This is when copyright comes to the fore. But somehow, hmm, some way, because copyright was part of this, WIPO agreed on new rules faster than it almost ever agreed on anything. They took up the agenda in September 95, and by December 1996, this UN bureaucracy had a diplomatic conference to approve the WIPO Copyright Treaty and the WIPO Performances and Phonograms Treaty. I mean, that's lightning fast for a bureaucratic organization. Those two treaties brought countries together to agree on how to handle digital copyright protection. Each country would then pass its own law to implement the treaty. That's how these treaties always worked. By 1998, the U.S. had passed the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. We often call it the DMCA. And partly because the U.S. generates so much copyrightable material, and partly just because the U.S. is a little pushy on the world stage, the DMCA became the de facto way of handling copyright protections on the Internet 
around the world. But what is it? Why did we need the DMCA or the WIPO copyright treaty at all? Let's help you know a little more about the DMCA. Ever since the internet became more than just something university IT experts used, worries about copyright violations on the internet have existed. Digital content is infinitely copyable, and the internet made it infinitely transferable. That's a nightmare for a business built on physical limitations to copying. If you have to make a vinyl record, it's a lot harder to make a copy than just saying copy a file. Movies on film, a lot harder to copy. So to extend these older business models onto the internet, companies use Digital Rights Management, or DRM. This is a name for varying ways of trying to lock up content so that only a user who is authorized to view or listen to it can. It's an attempt to make it not be infinitely copyable. It's trying to mimic the records and the films. DRM is tricky, though. Because you have to balance access for the person who does have the right, like a paying customer, with denying access to anyone who doesn't. And those are at cross purposes. If you leave a door open for authorized viewers, well, eventually unauthorized viewers are going to figure out a way into it. So the industry quickly turned to the law. They're like, well, if we can't always stop them, let's punish them. And that's how we get the WIPO Copyright Treaty and the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, or DMCA. While this is only a law in the U.S., it does affect anyone who publishes content in the U.S., such as on YouTube, and, as I mentioned, has provided a model for laws like it around the world. The problem it solves is that no matter what digital locks you put on a file, somebody can figure out a way to break them. So the law makes it illegal to break them. Now you can punish them if they break them. That's one of the main misunderstandings about the DMCA. It doesn't just make unauthorized access illegal. That was already illegal. Under copyright law, you could already punish them for that. It makes circumventing access protections illegal and punishable by fines and imprisonment. So if you break the copyright protection, you don't have to prove they did anything to infringe copyright. You can still punish them. Copyright holders can seek up to $2,500 per violation or statutory damages of up to $25,000. Repeat offenders can face more. And if you're accused of willfully violating the DMCA for personal or commercial financial gain, you can be tried as a criminal offender. A first-time criminal DMCA violator could face a fine up to $500,000 and up to five years in jail or both. Repeat offenders can be fined up to a million dollars and up to 10 years in prison. Screen capturing is a circumvention of the DMCA in many cases. Keep that in mind. The DMCA was passed as an amendment to the U.S. Copyright Act in 1998. It implemented those two 1996 treaties from the World Intellectual Property Organization. It makes it illegal to produce or disseminate even if you give it away for free, I see that all the time. Well, I'm not making money off this. Doesn't matter. If you produce or disseminate any device or service intended to circumvent measures that control access to copyrighted works, you broke the law. Now, courts decide whether a device or service is intended to circumvent copyright. 
Because, you know, computers can do this, but a computer's sole intention is not to circumvent copyrights, and they're not going to make laptops illegal. And that's why screen capturing software is not just illegal. The other aspect of the DMCA is it makes it illegal to circumvent access control even if copyright is not infringed. Let me repeat that. It is illegal to circumvent the access control even if you're not infringing the copyright. If you have a fair use for something, like making a backup of a DVD you own, that's legal. You can make a backup of it. However, it is illegal under the DMCA to circumvent copyright protection in order to make that fair use backup. The DMCA includes some limited exemptions, such as for security research and government research. There are other exemptions I'll talk about in a minute, but the ones that are built into the law itself are few. Now, you're probably saying, hold on, I thought they changed that. I thought thought DVD copying was legal. We'll get to that later, but it's a yes and no situation. There are a couple more aspects to keep in mind here. One is that the United States Copyright Office, which is part of the Library of Congress, was given the power to create and get rid of further exemptions to the DMCA. So it can, on a case-by-case basis, restore fair uses and say, you know what, we're going to let you circumvent copyright protection for these situations. More on that in a minute. Then there's safe harbor for platforms. Online service providers, which include platforms like YouTube and Facebook, are exempt from liability for their users' copyright infringement. It's not dissimilar to what happens with Section 230 regarding libel, but this is copyright infringement. You just have to follow certain procedures to keep that safe harbor. Platforms keep their safe harbor by promptly blocking access to infringing material once they are notified of an infringement claim. This is called the notice and takedown process. It also provides for a counter notification from a user who claims, wait a minute, this is a mistake. That material is not infringing. There's also an exemption for a repair person who makes limited copies solely for the purpose of repairing a machine. In other words, imaging a drive to restore it on a replacement drive does not violate the DMCA. There are also some provisions for distance education, ephemeral copies made in the process of broadcasting, and more. DMCA's Title V, though, is my favorite. Title V provides protection for boat hull designs. Hull, H-U-L-L, like the part of the boat that's in the water. Boat hull designs are not covered by copyright, as they cannot be separated from their useful function, and therefore are better protected by patents than copyright. Well, that makes sense. This Title V section of the DMCA was added in 1998 after the Supreme Court ruled in Benito Boats versus Thundercraft Boats that boat hulls did not have copyright protection. So immediately, boat manufacturers lobbied Congress, hurry up, add this exemption to the DMCA. As of 2019, there have been 538 applications for registrations for boat hull designs under the DMCA, uh, compared to more than 70,000 patents granted. Back to the notice and takedown system. The notice and takedown system is governed by Section 512 of the DMCA. In order to get the safe harbor protection, a service provider has to have an agent on file who takes notifications. You can't just say, I'm I'm safe harbor. You, You have to do a little work. You have to have a place that the notifications can be sent. The provider can't have reasonably known about the infringing activity or 
directly benefit financially from infringing activity. You can't pretend you didn't know about it when it was obvious, and you can't have built your entire business on the infringing activity and just wait for takedown notices. Okay, so now you're a safe harbor. You're a protected platform. You're doing a legitimate business. You don't let people willy-nilly put copyright infringing stuff up there, but it's a big platform. You can't possibly keep track of all of it, so you've got a notification system. How does it work if somebody thinks their copyright has been infringed on your platform? Well, it works differently for every system, but here are the parts required by Section 512. This is different than what all the other platforms do. We'll get that in a second. But here's the minimum you have to do. The notifier must send a formal takedown request notification under penalty of perjury. They can't knowingly lie about it. Once a notice is received, the provider then must expeditiously take down or block access to the material. Right away. No grace period. It must also promptly notify the user that their content has been removed or disabled and why. The user can then file a counter notification, also under penalty of perjury. They can't lie and say it's not infringing if they know it is. And the provider must then restore the content within 10 to 14 days. So yeah, send a takedown notice, content goes down immediately. Send a counter notice, eh, we'll get back to you in 10 to 14 days. So you could abuse the system, right? Just send notices for anything you want to disappear from the internet. For a couple of weeks, it'll be gone, right? Great way to keep people from saying things you don't want. Well, don't forget those perjury conditions are meant to keep the system from being abused, but in practice, perjury is kind of hard to prove. Just being mistaken, like, oh, I I guess I made a mistake, is not the same as perjury. You would have to prove that a company or a person knew the content was not infringing when it sent the notice, not just that it made a mistake. And end users are much more likely not to want to risk a perjury lawsuit than large companies who send bulk notices. So most takedown notices are successful. Willful and malicious abuses happen. They are rare, though. Mistakes, however, are rampant. Lots of companies have been accused of sending inaccurate bulk takedown notices, sometimes machine-generated, sometimes even affecting their own employees. But that's not the same as perjury. That's just a mistake. So, as you might guess, there's a chilling effect of the DMCA. A content hosting platform can avoid falling afoul of the DMCA by just not hosting material altogether. I mean, there's no law that says you have to host stuff. So some companies, like YouTube, have employed informal takedown notices that are not meant to be the legally required notices. These are usually constructed as terms of service violations. This isn't the DMCA. This is a terms of service issue. This lets them take down content without risking the perjury charge. Companies have the right to operate outside the DMCA in this way because the law can't force them to host content they don't want to. A copyright holder is only subject to perjury restrictions if they're following the formal takedown procedure. YouTube does have a method of proceeding from informal takedowns to formal ones. For years, YouTube used a bot system called Content ID to look for possibly infringing content. If the bot thinks it sees a match to a database of content provided by big copyright holders, it'll pull the content off the site and notify the user it has been pulled. But that's not part of the DMCA. 
If the user disputed the content ID claim, YouTube would then contact the alleged rights holder, and the rights holder could release the claim, and the content would go back up, or could uphold the claim, and the user would be notified that the rights holder still claimed the content was infringing and it's going to stay down. That is when it partly becomes part of the DMCA, because that second notice can serve as the rights holder's first formal takedown notice. But since the bot had identified the content as infringing, the risk of perjury for the rights holder is almost nothing. I didn't think it was infringing. The bot told me that. If the user did not have an account in good standing or had already appealed three other claims, that's it. DMCA never entered into it for that user. That was YouTube policy. YouTube just declined to host the content because they didn't want to. However, if the user was in good standing and had not reached the appeal limit, then a DMCA counterclaim would be issued to the rights holder with the risk of perjury for the user still there. And the normal DMCA takedown procedure then takes place. The rights holder would then have to decide whether to pursue it in court or not. This happens to me. I have multiple times gone through this entire process of, we took your thing down. I counter it. Well, they still think it's taken down. Okay, now we're in the DMCA and I counter it. And they don't take me to court. Most people don't want to do that. I've also been in a situation where I worked for a company where someone sent us a video they had hosted on YouTube. We put it in our show and then their original video got taken down because ours was in the database. As I mentioned earlier, the U.S. Copyright Office can make exemptions to the DMCA. It regularly reviews these exemptions and can add, extend, or remove them. Copyright Office has issued exemptions to the DMCA over the years, so let's look at a few of the more prominent examples. First two in 2000 were for website filtering, you know, like safe sites for kids, that kind of stuff, and preservation of damaged or obsolete software and databases. In 2003, an exemption was given to screen readers for ebooks and one for video games distributed in obsolete formats. A brief exemption was given in 2006 for sound recordings protected by software with security flaws, specifically the Sony Rootkit. Uh, also in 2006, one for unlocking wireless phones. In 2010, an exemption for breaking DVDs content scrambling system was issued for educational, documentary, non commercial, or preservation uses. And an exemption was given for security testing in video games. In 2012, an exemption for excerpting short portions of movies for criticism or comment was given. In 2018, there was given an exemption for 3D printers solely to use alternate feedstock. You can't be locked into using the company who sold you the printer's feedstock, as well as one to expand exemptions for preservation and security research. And in October 2021, an exemption was given for repairing any consumer device that relies on software, as well as medical devices and land, sea, and air vehicles, even if they aren't consumer-focused. All right, so... I see you sitting there in Europe or Southeast Asia saying, why, why should I care? On the one hand, you're right. U.S. law does not apply outside the U.S. However, copyright owners from outside the U.S. can still issue takedown notices on U.S. sites. And so many sites are hosted in the U.S. these days. But the bigger thing to remember is that the DMCA is the U.S. implementation of the World Intellectual Property Organization Copyright Treaty and the WIPO Performances and Phonograms Treaty. The WIPO Copyright Treaty was signed by 110 countries, and most members of the World Intellectual Property Organization have agreed to accept DMCA takedown notices. Think of it like this. 
A country adopted the WIPO treaties. The U.S. created a system to enforce it. So that country just borrows the U.S. system. It's not that U.S. law is enforceable in their country. It's that the U.S. enforcement system of the WIPO treaty is a nice, easy, prepackaged way to do things. Copyright enforcement as a service. Some countries, however, are known as what are called DMCA-ignored countries. Uh, these are countries who either have not agreed to WIPO's provisions, systematically ignore those provisions, or maybe they just prioritize their own copyright laws over those of the U.S., and so websites do not honor DMCA requests. You'll see different countries put on these lists, but generally, the list includes Russia, Bulgaria, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Hong Kong, Singapore, Malaysia, Switzerland, and Moldova. They're often promoted as places to host websites if you're concerned about copyright infringement, though each carries its own set of concerns, either with local laws or political situations. You might say, what about China? Shouldn't China be on that list? China doesn't necessarily honor the U.S.'s DMCA, but it has enough other restrictions that it's not generally included on these lists of great places to host a website if you're concerned about copyright infringement. Now, nobody loves the DMCA, but it has proved to be surprisingly stable. Its next big test will be machine-generated works, like ChatGPT, or the multiple text-to-image generators like MidJourney. So far, the discussions have been about where copyright applies with these tools, but that's going to drift into the DMCA and put its uneasy equilibrium to the test. For example, in April 2023, an unknown composer created a song and used some machine generation to make the song sound like it was being sung by Drake and The Weeknd. The song lyrics and the beats were original, but the artist had used a producer tag that was not. Universal Music Group used that producer tag as the basis for the copyright takedowns. But an original song isn't a copyright violation, and just making it sound like Drake in the weekend may or may not be a copyright violation. So versions without that tag might have forced the issue. That's the first, not the last, of what will be a long discussion about where machine-generated works fall in copyright. How that discussion plays out is likely going to determine whether the DMCA stays standing as it is, gets modified somehow, or rewritten altogether. In fact, not just the DMCA, but probably the WIPO treaties as well. So that is the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, a.k.a. the DMCA. It makes it illegal to circumvent copyright protection unless there is an exemption written in the act itself or added by the U.S. Copyright Office. It also provides a way to try to get infringing material removed and a way for a user to combat having that material removed by mistake. I hope this helps you understand why some content is allowed up and some is not, and why you don't see some content at all. In other words, I hope you know a little more about the DMCA. Know a Little More is researched, written, and hosted by me, Tom Merritt. Editing and production provided by Anthony Lamos in conjunction with Will Saddleberg and Dog and Pony Show Audio. It's issued under a Creative Commons Share Attribution 4.0 international license. Dog and Pony Show Audio.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.